Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Alan Sokolitsky, who's from the Zalarap Advisory. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. For several months now, we've been operating in a very strange vortex of a market. We've apparently got a disconnect between the economy and equity markets. So I wanted to get your backdrop in terms of how we think about this potential disconnect. Sure. And uh, thanks for the question. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, so in terms of the disconnect, it, what's interesting is that it, it it is, in fact, a disconnect in the sense that uh, economic growth uh, is basically the worst it's ever been or close to it. And yet you have markets that are uh, off to the races. But at the same time, there are good reasons for the existence of the disconnect. And so whether that means that the disconnect should be called something else or not is a separate question. But the reasons for the disconnect making sense are sort of as follows. With um, In terms of the economy, um, you had uh, an economy that was pretty much at the tail end of uh, the longest expansion that has ever taken place. And you had that coincide with an unexpected and unprecedented global pandemic. So you end up in a situation where the recovery uh, can easily take quite a bit longer than many might expect because of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the fact that those two things coincided, the tail end of the expansion and the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, given the extent of the policy response that we've had, a considerable amount of that has in fact flown into the market. So it's less that the market is making a call on the economy or that there is a disconnect between the two that makes no sense. So much as it's, yes, there's a disconnect and there's actually a pretty good reason for it. Uh, You've got poor economic growth and you have unprecedented policy that seems to be flowing quite a bit uh, into the equity markets. I guess the next question then is, okay, we've got this this disconnect and and you've got policy and a lot of different policies supporting either the underlying economy or, you know, the directly, for example, the the bond part of the market, you know, are we, are we effectively almost hollowing out then the, the whole premise of markets in this current situation? So, to I guess I would say to to an extent, um, you know, how the hollowing out. I guess uh, it all, it almost makes it sound like uh, um, you're you're ridding it in, uh, ridding of it entirely. But but to a certain extent, that's probably accurate. It, uh, we like to use the word distortion. Uh, there are plenty of distortions that are taking place precisely because of this. Uh, there there's sort of you know when when you talk about the impact of policy on the economy and the markets. You have to view it, but by virtue of what economics is, you have to view it with a, from like a very objective perspective, which, which means you can say that maybe policy A is having a not so good impact uh, on the economy, which, which is totally separate from whether you might believe ethically, let's say morally, that that policy should actually take place no matter what. Th- those are two very separate things. And so... 
but that gets me to, yes, there are distortions and, and there are an enormous amount of distortions because we've had an enormous amount of policy response. Uh, what does policy response do in a nutshell? It basically bolsters, it supports areas of the economy that would otherwise go under or not exist if not for that support. And frankly, that is a lot of the reason why the support is there in the first place. So, it, you know, wh whether you believe that that support should exist no matter what, that, that again, is a very separate question. But, but the almost kind of cold-hearted or, or objective economic answer is there are distortions being created everywhere simply because so much of the economy is being supported. It's sort of when I think about distortions, there's two parts to it. One is sort of the distortion, which is the economic distortion. And, and that comes back to sort of the allocation of capital, the allocation of resources. And are we potentially maybe threatening future returns and future growth? And the other distortion is, you know, there's many market participants that are trying to sort of take advantage of distortions in pricing, which now doesn't work either. So maybe if you could sort of go through the economic distortions and what you think about the impact there versus the the distortions on the financial markets and how you know, historically how people trade and how people you know try to reprice things doesn't work. Sure. So, well, so on the economic side, I, I'd say that uh, two of the primary distortions, uh, at least at a macro level, uh, one would be on uh, when it comes to the labor market, and the distortions that take place there are. You know, and and this is maybe this is this would have been a better place uh, for me to give the uh, uh, preface about the importance of um, handling the objective economic analysis separate from the sort of moral ethical uh, hat that you might put on, and the reason why is because when it comes to supporting. Um, let's say, a lot of individuals uh, that are facing unemployment in the midst of such a downturn, uh, that level of support that has been given throughout the economy, not just those individuals, but businesses too, all of those would be facing different circumstances without that policy response. And so when you bolster those industries, save those industries, and you almost incentivize to some extent at least their persistence, then as the world evolves, which it does every second of every minute of every day, those persisting uh, areas of the labor market and industries and businesses that have been saved, how are they appropriately positioned for an evolving economy? And, and the answer is, well, they're, they're less positioned at the very least, if not more so. So the labor market is undoubtedly getting distorted, and the labor market might easily take uh, uh, quite a long time to recover fully as well. Um, then the other piece is inflation. Uh, inflation itself is distortionary precisely because prices do not rise in all areas of the economy uh, at the same rate, at the same time. Uh, all of that changes, and it would change, you know, even without an unprecedented policy response. But when you throw an unprecedented policy response on top of it, what you end up with is a situation where not only do prices in different areas change all the time, but now you have prices changing in different areas all the time with all, an unprecedented amount of uh, policy thrown on top of the mix to uh, full of further distort the the already otherwise uh, distortionary uh, economy that you might have. So those two areas, whether it's inflation or labor, 
they are easily susceptible to those uh, uh, to those effects of policy. But when it comes to the markets, um, this is where we think that, interestingly enough, you can capitalize on the, these distortionary effects, so to speak. Um, we have a pretty reasonable amount of policy impact that's built into our models, which are created, to be blunt, uh, to forecast markets uh, on a monthly basis, uh, well, depending on which country we talk about and things of that nature. But um, you can use those distortionary effects to figure out which areas you should overweight or underweight. And right now, one area that we like uh, let's say sector-wise, would be uh, discretionary over staples. Uh, the relationship there uh, has been, uh, is in favor of discretionary. We think it's going to be that way for, call it, the next year plus. Uh, that trend, by the way, began uh, early in 2020, and, and we do think it's going to hold. And so you end up with an overall distortion in the sense that here we are talking about how this economic recovery might take so long, and yet you can also favor more pro-cyclical sectors like discretionary while that economy is taking so long to recover. It's an interesting sort of piece because, you know, how, what, what are the factors that come behind that, right? There, there's obviously decisions that, that, you know, factor into your model around, you know, why you prefer discretionary. You know, is it around valuation or is it around the narrative that you believe that discretionary will outperform? What, what's that driving factor? Well, so on, when it comes to using valuation, we think that valuation is an incredibly useful tool for longer term market forecasting of returns. Um, if you look at the correlation between valuation and what future returns look like, uh, the correlation is pretty good. It's a 0.8 when you're looking at a seven to 10 year future time frame. Uh, but when it's less than five years, you're looking at a correlation of about 0.3. So valuation is, in fact, useful for longer-term forecasting of asset class returns. But when it comes to short-term, shorter-term forecasting of asset class returns, it's a lot more about thinking through the channels through which money that enters the, ec the economy the channels through which it flows and the order through which it flows through all those different channels. Um, and so those two components, what are the channels and, and the order in which it flows through the different channels, those are a big component of how we forecast different uh, uh, asset class returns. So the overall market or sectors, whatever the case may be. So I use that example of discretionary over staples that that's, you know, that's just one example of, uh, of where we see a very, honestly, a very clear uh, relationship in favor of discretionary for that one year plus time frame. And thinking more about the total market's performance, you know, how important mm -hmm. is the Fed's balance sheet in terms of the, the connection with the broader market performance? So it is most definitely related, uh, but there are, there are some nuances to it. And, and that kind of goes back to those channels through which policy, uh, the, let's say the money associated with policy, the channels through which it flows and the order in which it flows through them, it kind of goes back to that. So from, from a sort of step one perspective, yes, the, the size of the balance sheet, or, or maybe more specifically, I should say the changes in the size of the balance sheet uh, are in fact important. 
but I would emphasize that that's sort of a step one, which is why um, you you know there, there's been a lot of research that's uh, come out recently uh, around the idea of well, there's a close relationship between uh, the balance sheet and how equity markets have been performing in in recent uh, timeframes. And and while that's entirely true so far as that research goes we would argue that in a lot of ways, there's a way to significantly improve the forecastability of using something like the balance sheet. So yes, it's definitely useful, but there are ways that it sort of needs to be adjusted to uh, to become more useful. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got this sort of broader construct where you sort of talk about returns being you know impacted for five and 10 years. As you build a, an SAA, strategic, strategic asset allocation, you know, are you sort of advising people to sort of reformulate that SAA given the new returns or is it going to be basically the same sort of SAA that we put forward, but then lower returns should be the expectation? Sure. So it's it's definitely closer to the latter, uh, much closer to the latter. Um, and the reason, so so there are two components to this. The the first is well, why the piece about lower returns than than historically has been the case, and a lot of that really does come down to valuations. Um, given where valuations are, they are definitely elevated, um, and and probably will become more elevated. Uh, given those levels, that usually implies market returns on those five to 10-year timeframes, they're going to be lower. So that's one component. Um, But the the other piece that we think is really important is because those return expectations are going to come down, that automatically creates a more difficult hurdle for some investors to jump over if they have some sort of a hurdle. And of course, those hurdles come in many different forms, depending on the types of investors uh, uh, you might be. But many of them have hurdles. And when your return expectations come down, that means it's more difficult to jump the hurdles. And so that's why we find that what we do, which is predict market returns uh, over shorter time frames, we think that now is probably among the most useful times to uh, to use that type of research, precisely because when it becomes a lot more difficult to jump over the hurdle, it would be really nice if you had some sort of, uh, you know, the help or support uh, to help you jump over the hurdle. And that's where we think our shorter term uh, tactical forecasting ability is uh, uh, it really comes in handy, and and it doesn't. By the way, you know, never has to be something like own all of this and none of that. It works entirely within a strategic asset allocation framework. It can be used to overweight one asset class for a period of time, underweight another asset class, and all of those changes they add up over time. So maybe what might have been an overall forecast of you know let's say six percent all of a sudden goes up to a level that actually helps an investor get over the hurdle that they needed to get over. You talked there a little bit about the sort of one-month forecast and you referenced to, to tactical asset allocation. Can you give it a little bit more context in terms of uh, sort of what are those those specific movements look like? You sort of gave a, a brief backdrop. Um, sure. But if you could go into it a little bit more. Sure. Well, in a in a big way, I'm I'm actually grateful that you asked this question because I I did say one month forecast. Uh, now that I heard it asked back to me, I realized what I probably should have said was 
from now, we can make a forecast about what we think will take place in a month. But that forecast itself was made quite a while ago. Um, call it, depending on the asset class, uh, a year in advance, two years in advance. It, it, of course, again, it differs by the asset class. So it's not to imply that information we have right now is being used to make a forecast in a month, so much as it is to say, if the asset class we're talking about, we made the forecast a year ago, well, then, you know, for the next month, we probably have a forecast given the forecast we made before. So it's not that we're making a one-month forecast so much as that we have the forecast for a month from now, that that's more uh, uh, about how we do it. It's that we make them quite a bit in advance based on cycles and market movements. Is that then fair to say that you're sort of capturing momentum or some sort of a trend following approach? Is, is that what you're doing? It's less about momentum and trend following and, and more about, and more about, I mean, here's what it really comes down to. So we, we spent a few years coming up with a theory of how literally money and capital flows through the economy. Um, and, and if you take a step back, you know, in, when you live in a world that is so data rich and not only data rich, but also data rich at the snap of a finger, it, it almost, it feels as though you're going decades back in time. Uh, if someone says, well, you know, when, when money enters the financial system, first it goes here, then it goes there, then this part of it goes to another place. That makes everything sound so long, which again, in this day and age sounds so strange, but yet that is basically how money flows through the system. Nothing gets to its eventual destination at the snap of a finger. So a lot of the models, they're basically built around the idea of what are the channels that money goes through, how much of it goes to one direction, how much of it goes in another direction, and the fact that that process takes light years, I guess, relative to the world we live in today, where everything seems to take place at a second. So it's in a big way, I guess it's cycle investing in in a sense, Um, but it's not cycle investing in the sense that there are definitive uh, phases of the cycle that we're going to hit in sequential order. You know, it's, it's not structured in that sense but simply in the sense that there are cyclical ups and downs that take place in the markets. In that sense, it, it would be fair to, to call it something like that. Mm-hmm. And how much does then sentiment build into the process? Uh, sentiment, quite honestly, has a, uh, a smaller component to it. And, and the reason why is because sentiment is... <sighs> In a lot of ways, sentiment is almost an, an after effect. And, and I'll, so I'll explain what that means. It's, it's sort of, um, let's say, while you're in the process of tracking the channels that money flows through and the order in which it goes through those channels, while, while you do something like that and, and that process is happening, the sentiment, the reaction to it takes place at all those different steps after, of course, the money flows through those different areas, right? The, mm-hmm. the sentiment can't react to those things until they first take place. And so as a result of that after effect, what, what's most impactful in, in our eyes is 
what are the channels and the order in which the money flows through those channels, because that's going to create the primary impact. In a lot of ways, we probably could easily forecast what the reaction is going to be to them, whether positive or negative, at least broadly speaking. And so that's why sentiment plays, uh, I guess, less of a factor uh, in the models than simply where is the money going? I mean, maybe that's a good phrase to use to explain it. Where is the money going? Mm-hmm. I'm curious then in terms of how, you know, how do you sort of balance out the weighting of what's tactical versus the broader SAA, like in terms of how much to move day to day or month to month? Sure. Well, so we definitely uh, do not advocate uh, making uh, uh, tactical shifts on anything like a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and the reason why is because on a day-to-day basis, there really is so much noise that can move the market. Now, anyone can make an argument that even on a month-to-month basis, there's a lot of noise that can move the market. But at least on a month-to-month basis, you have a much larger quantity of data that you could have put together, again, in our case, call it a year to two years in advance, whatever the case may be, uh, that is going to impact the market the majority of the amount that it will impact the market. So the day-to-day moves, I mean, who knows if you you hit your target that we might give uh, in the middle of the month, the beginning of the month, the the third week of the month, that's all up for grabs. But at some point in the month, you're, you're going to hit this target that, uh, that we might give. And, and so that's how we would think about it. You, if anything, you might want to make those tactical shifts on a monthly basis. You could easily, t- because we have those forecasts come out on a monthly basis, you could look at maybe what the next three-month average you know, of our forecasts is and decide that you can little by little shift into it. You could look at the next six months. You could look at the next 12 months and decide, okay, here's a rough idea about where the market is probably going to go. Let me adjust the portfolio based on that rather than literally trading on a month-to-month basis. I mean, we have some clients that, of course, do prefer to do that, but there are a lot of ways, as you can imagine, to use research that basically gives you a pretty good idea about the level that the market is going to hit over the next, you know, X number of months. Mm-hmm. And that broader framing that you think about, where we sort of focused mainly on equities and predominantly US equities, how do you think about sort of, you know, understanding the channels of money more globally? Well, so so that that's actually, I'm actually really grateful you asked that question too. And the reason why is because what, so when, when we first started developing this theory that eventually got translated into the models, um, one of the requirements uh, for us, I guess from a kind of theoretical standpoint, statistical standpoint, however you might put it, one of the requirements at a basic level was if there's any validity to this theory being useful, then we better be applying the same theory to every market all over the world. Now, to be fair, not every country has exactly the same data sets and things like that, but at least broadly speaking, you should be applying the same theory because if all of a sudden you apply something different to every country, then the entire narrative or the theory you've put together clearly is not globally relevant. Um, Luckily, uh, what turned out to be the case is that the theory is in fact applicable to many different uh, markets all over the world. Uh, It's used not just on the equity side, uh, it's used on the rate side. um, And that is with countries that have very, very different financial systems, uh, very different data sets that are available, but so far so good, I I guess in a sense. Mm 
Let, let's then dig a little bit into the sort of the, the makeup of sort of equities and bonds or other real assets or even gold, for example. You know, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of uh, endowments or pension funds or super funds in Australia have investment targets to hit, uh, and those targets are getting harder to hit in terms of the, the CPI plus target. You know, how mm-hmm. do you think about sort of the composition of, of asset classes to build? Sure. Well, so uh, the, a lot of this will depend on what those targets might be and what the risk tolerance of, of the different strategies might be, things, you know, kind of big picture, things like that. But I, I guess what I would say is the asset allocation uh, that we would be recommending now is in so many ways very similar to asset allocations we might have uh, recommended previously. So uh, if you're looking for, uh, let's say, a a strategy that should generate better returns, which is going to come with corresponding higher levels of risk, you will still want to allocate, let's say, more to equities as opposed to something like fixed income. Uh, And of course, the uh, vice versa is also true. But it goes back to that very critical piece about return expectations. So you'll end up in a situation where if your return expectations come down more or less, let's say, across the board, uh, you'll end up with allocations that look very similar to what they were before, but, but your end result is going to be lower. And that, that of course, is where, where we thought the tactical piece can, can come quite a bit in handy. The other part that I would mention, and this puts even the tactical component aside, is that the need for diversification is at least as important now as it was ever before. Um, And the reason why that's an important point to emphasize, despite the fact that diversification is something, of course, that's that's been talked about for decades and decades now, um, is because we've been living in a world where for the last, you know, X amount of time, it seems as though, let's just pick the equity market. It seems as though you've had this one asset class that's been the outperformer uh, relative to everyone else. And let's say even diving into equity specifically, the U.S. uh, has been uh, a better market than a lot of international markets. And so I can tell you just in the U.S., we have a lot of investors that for some time now have basically been saying, why is it that I've been hearing about diversification for so long when I can just buy the S&P 500 and call it a day? And the answer is, historically, diversification is not something that works every time. It's something that works over time. And the last thing that an investor wants is to be reminded of the need for diversification at a time when they didn't have a diversified portfolio. So there will undoubtedly be stretches where being a little bit less diversified seems like the winning recipe, but it's definitely over time a much better idea to diversify very broadly across asset classes. That means you don't have home bias. It means your uh, allocations to fixed income should not necessarily just be uh, high-grade credit or government debt. Uh, It needs to be fixed income in emerging markets. Uh, It can be dollar denominated or, you know, um, hard currency denominated, local currency denominated. The, The idea here is to kind of broaden the scope of what diversification really means. So when you combine that 
with the tactical piece, given the environment we see going forward, then you end up with a, a pretty good combination for, for a strategy that can meet hurdles. There's, there's two asset classes that you didn't talk about um, around diversification, one being cash, the second being commodities more broadly and specifically uh, yes, gold. Yes. Mm-hmm. How do you think about cash and gold? Sure. So cash is <clears throat> cash is undoubtedly uh, a it, well, it's it is an asset allocation, most definitely it is. Um, but it, it's a it's an asset allocation that needs to be made more so in certain environments, less so in other environments. Uh, the environment that we're in today, probably warrants more of an allocation to cash than historically has been the case. Um, And the reason why is because markets are very likely to become, not not just, uh, by the way, not just having uh, lower expected returns, but they're also to become uh, likely to become more volatile than they have been before. Um, And so what it means is you're going to be better served if you have some cushion uh, to use opportunistically as the case may be. And and let me emphasize here, opportunistically, once again, does not by any means imply trading day by day or anything like that. It just means having a cushion on hand to be able to make investments that you would like to make over reasonable time frames. So cash is definitely something that's important to have in the portfolio. Um, and and uh, in terms of commodities, commodities, it's interesting. They've they've been such an underappreciated asset class uh, in in the investment community, uh, and we think that they always have and always will deserve much more credit than they seem to have gotten for a long period of time. Uh, it's not to say by any means that commodities should make up the entirety of anyone's investment strategy. But it's basically to say that commodities deserve equal treatment as any other asset class in the portfolio, whether it's stocks or bonds or anything else. So they should be in the portfolio. And, and within commodities, uh, gold absolutely deserves a, a place in the portfolio. Um, gold is most definitely a hedge in a sense for n- not necessarily inflation per se, not necessarily for deflation, as some argue, per se, but more so a hedge for financial uncertainty of significant extent. Maybe that's a way to put it. When there's a lot of worry about, is the financial system going to be around tomorrow? You know, questions along those lines, maybe not that severe, but those are the times when you want to have gold in your portfolio. And it's very often hard to figure out exactly when that time will be, which is precisely why you should have some gold in your portfolio. Um, we also, by the way, like copper and as a side note. Uh, you know, I might as well mention that uh, another, another trade that we're favorable on, I, I talked before from a sector perspective about uh, discretionary and staples. Another area is uh, uh, between uh, copper and gold. Um, we actually think that the environment going forward is going to be more favorable for copper relative to gold. And the reason why is because even if you have a longer than expected recovery, uh, economically speaking, 
the fact that you're even talking about a recovery, putting aside how long it takes, that automatically means that something like Dr. Copper, which is a lot more closely tied to the economy, is probably going to outperform relative to gold. Uh, so that that's you know that's one area that we like there. So the final question around sort of this, you, you sort of touched on a little bit there around sort of the systemic risk issues that that are still out there. You know what's what's maybe the the tipping point for you to feel that we've sort of muddled through this current situation and then we are back to a, you know, a better economy effectively. Sure. So, well. There, there are a number of uh, a number of areas. I mean, the, the primary ones I, I would focus on are the labor. Well, it's, I, I, as I'm thinking about this, I'm I'm also thinking about the fact that the ones I'm going to mention as the primary ones also happen to be the ones that are probably the most difficult to achieve. Um, the the labor market would be one. Um, we think that we could easily persist uh, with elevated uh, weakness in the labor market. Um, you know, some of that goes back to recent months where the, even the unemployment numbers and just the labor, the health of the labor market has been come into question from how do you calculate the data perspective? So that's one part, of course, and whether they've been even looking at it the right way. But the other piece is goes back to the comments I made earlier about um, when you have so much policy support supporting businesses and and uh, uh, areas of the labor market that maybe otherwise would not have been supported, uh, you end up in a situation where the labor market is put almost in a, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, zombie state in, in a way. So the labor market would be one area. Another area would be if we can end up in a situation where inflation uh, seems to be for, you know, call it months and months at a time, quarters at a time, moving at the Fed's long, long held target of about 2%. Um, if and when that's achieved, you can also take, uh, take comfort that, uh, that the environment is probably, in fact, heading in a, a better direction. Now, we, we do see more elevated levels of inflation towards the end of next year, but you know, if, if those are able to reverse over time, that would definitely be a uh, uh, positive uh, uh, for the economy. Mm-hmm. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Alan. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.